So I'm here with my dad in the living room in Liverpool. My dad's just had a brandy. <laughs> oh, that's my dad's brandy laugh. I'm Roger Bennett. And I grew up in Liverpool, England, a city in which football, soccer, is pretty much everything. In Liverpool, I'm known as an Evertonian, just like my dad before me and his dad before him. What's an Evertonian, I hear you asking? Obviously, in an American accent. It's to be a fan of a football team, a soccer team. One thing you've got to understand about growing up in England is that we define ourselves by our football affiliation. And when I tell anyone that I'm an Evertonian, they know immediately that I fill my life with tiny, carefully regulated bursts of hope. It's often a lesson in life suffering and about enjoying the moment. Would you say that's fair? Well, you never know in life what's coming along. You have to look forward, but you never know what's going to be. I have been saying that about Everton for years. Albert Camus, bit of a writer, but before that, he was almost a professional grey goalkeeper. He was alleged to have once said, everything I know about morality and the obligations of men, I owe it to football. He may or may not have said those words, but it's exactly how I live my life. Football made me feel things. Emotions about victory, defeat, happiness, doom all of which I'm largely numb to in real life. Now, the apex of every football fan's calendar is the World Cup, a circus which happens every four years. Some of my earliest memories as a kid revolve around watching the delirious scenes of the 1978 World Cup unfold in Argentina. If someone casually mentions 1985, my mind automatically defaults to 1986 when the cup happened to be in Mexico and I was a 10th grader in Liverpool. Just about the only thing in my life that rivaled my love for soccer as a kid was my complete and utter fascination with all things American. This is American Fiasco. I'm Roger Bennett. This is American Fiasco, a show that, much like America itself, starts in England. Yeah, I seem to remember you insisted when we had the room decorated, you had the stars and stripes. The whole wall was... I didn't just um, grow up in England. I grew up in 1980s England. Margaret Thatcher... The country was riven with strikes, riots were common, and Liverpool always felt like it was just about to burn down. Life there, it seemed like I lived in black and white, while everything I knew about America appeared to be lived in technicolour. So my bedroom wall, it was plastered with posters of American pop culture idols. They were all there, the greats, 
Debbie Gibson, William Refrigerator Perry, Public Enemy, the cast of Heart to Heart. And don't be a hater. History will remember Heart to Heart kindly. Trust me. That obsession with America, I took it really, really far. All the coke cans that um, uh, Roger accumulated, he must have had uh, 50, 60 piled up on his wardrobe. Life lesson. Let your kid build coke can skyscrapers and paint the US flag on their bedroom wall. Odds are, they'll leave you. And then what happens is that he gets himself to America. He gets to start off in Chicago. Yeah, I do. So I moved to Chicago. And to be candid, when I got there, I couldn't be happier. I had everything that I needed. I had friends. I had new opportunity. But there's one thing that was just gnawing at me. It was tearing my flesh away. The one thing that I'd grown up believing in, obsessing about... <sighs> It just didn't exist there. That thing, of course, was soccer. It was like suddenly I had a phantom limb and I was left only with the memory of what it felt like to be a soccer fan. Of course, not long after I moved to America, against all the odds. Well, I have to tell you, I have watched Everton a fair number of times... (laughs) But this is one performance that I shan't forget. And my club, Everton Football Club, not a very good team, but punching above their weight in a miracle run, getting to the semi-final of a remarkable competition, the FA Cup. It dawns on me in my little dim state, this is not going to happen on cable television. You see, in England, somehow we got by with just four television channels. I know it sounds crazy. But in America, the promised land, I discovered you had hundreds. And those channels, they broadcast everything. C-SPAN, spelling bees, competitive eating. But the one thing that I couldn't find on any of those hundreds of channels was a soccer match. And my dad, he comes out with an idea. Dad, you said what? Well, I was able to watch it on English television. And I thought, well, what's the best way for Roger... He can't see what's going on, but I suppose as second best, he could hear what's going on. Of course, you know I said that he should phone me, and I wasn't going to pay. These were the days when a transatlantic phone call was really a transatlantic phone call, and it cost an arm and a leg. And I phoned up, and my father held the phone to the television for 90 minutes, 90 glorious minutes, It was a day that ranks up there with my wedding and the birth of my four kids because Everton won that game four goals to one. (laughs) It was one of the great phone calls of my life. Now the history of soccer in America. That's a story of fits and starts. Way back, 1930, the very first World Cup, America actually made it to the semi-finals. I can't believe you're not still talking about that achievement. Two decades of nothing followed. In 1950, soccer was so insignificant that the United States World Cup victory in a first-round game against the mighty English, who were then one of the greatest teams in the world, it barely registered in the American media. 
The US team back then, it was a ragtag bunch. A minor league baseball player, a paint stripper, and a Haitian-born dishwasher who scored the winning goal. They were strangers with nothing in common. Hey, you go to Yale, you I never went to no college. But their passion for a game. There was even a movie made about it. The game of their lives. The 1950 team's manager, a bloke called Joe Numi, he was one of the first Americans to utter the great doom prediction, this is all we need to make the game go in America. In fact, the US didn't qualify for another World Cup for nearly 40 years, and no one cared. Another one of those future is now moments arrived after the 1966 World Cup, when the North American Soccer League was born. NASL, I know, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Soccer finally comes of age in the USA. But even with imported stardust, like Brazil's Pelé, the league was a fad that first burned brightly, but then flamed out. By 1985, the NASL wasn't filling the stands, and it went belly up. During that dark age, Americans didn't just ignore soccer, they actively hated it. And I always found it psychologically revealing. So... I feel like the answer that always is given is the lack of scoring. And it's a little bit of a cop-out, but I think there is some truth to it because you can watch a soccer game forever and no one will score. This is my friend, Dan Katz. He's better known as Big Cat, the co-host of the remarkable podcast, Pardon My Take, from Barstool Sports. And it's painful to watch, you know? We want scoring, we want big plays, we want big hits. We're Americans. And the fact that you can tie in soccer, which is the most un-American thing in the world. What, what's a tie team? A, a tie is brutal. And the fact that you can tie after playing an entire game makes no sense. Seems like a weakness. Yeah, absolutely. You got to have a winner. So scoring, not fully understanding the game. And to be totally honest, and this is probably revealing a little bit of our own, uh, you know, insecurities. Let's go there. Yeah. Our own insecurities as Americans. We suck at it. That's the big one. Winning. We need to be the best. Because when 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 I'm watching MLS or I'm watching, uh, you know, wh- whatever it is, whatever league you want to watch, pick it. America's not the best. When I watch the NBA, I know the, the Golden State Warriors, when they win the NBA championship, they are the best team in the world. When I watch the NFL, when the Nonsense. Philadelphia Eagles win, win the Super Bowl, they are the best football team in the entire world. World champs. World champs. So basically, to recap, Americans hate soccer because there's not much scoring and because there's such a thing as the tie game and because it's complicated and that you suck at it. Now, Americans may find winning more interesting than losing, but I'm not convinced they're right. Which is why I want to tell you this story. It combines three things that I love, soccer, America and the World Cup. And it definitely does not end with the crowd chanting Rocky's name. So let's start at the beginning. In 1989, the year the United States men's national team quietly made history. 
to Paul Caligiuri, and look at this gentle shot, puts it onto his left foot, and lifts it in! And the USA on top, one goal to none. There weren't many U.S. fans there, but those that were in attendance were delirious. That one goal. When you broadcast that, with all like the hardcore American ball sports fans, like this, who grew up playing street ball in Brooklyn, the NFL, the NBA fans, like WTF, Bob Lee, what is this coming on my television? This is America, man. For those who had grown up around the game and knew it, this was great. The World Cup, my gosh, the shot heard around the world, the, the great goal, but. It was a discreet audience to whom this was important news. It really was. For the first time in four decades, the US was going to the World Cup. And they'd done it on the road with an upset in Trinidad and Tobago in front of a raucous crowd of 30,000 that maybe contained about 12 hardy US fans. Sure, most Americans didn't care about that soccer tournament in Italy. But for the players themselves... This was an amazing accomplishment worth celebrating in the American way with a music video. That poetry is Victory by Def Jeff and DJ Eric Vaughan. You've got to see the video to believe it. US soccer players dancing topless on the beach and a cameo from OJ Simpson. Google it now. And once you got over the size of their six-packs, the thing that stands out to me, it's their joy and their innocence. You recorded Victory with Def Jeff and DJ Eric Vaughan on the beach <laughs> in Malibu. Yeah. That's John Hawks, a midfielder with movie star good looks. The camera loves him. I mean, you'll see him all over the video. He's the one doing the running man on the beach. He kills it. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. You know, I think the Federation was like all, all in. Like, let's get this game out there. Let's get it on. And uh, we're on the beach in Malibu shooting this, uh, this video. Um, Shirtless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it was a beach, you know, Roger. You know, we do these. We have beaches in America, not like rocks and pebbles. Later, he and OJ share a mic in the recording studio, a la We Are The World. I think it did give us a little bit of more exposure and got interviewed and we had the video shown for a little bit and then it was, it was out the door. <laughs> I was done. Back then, Hawks was one of several young players who were starting long careers with the national squad. Another was defender Marcelo Balboa, half man, half mullet. I was a, and, I, and I'll tell you how they described me. They described me of Rambo of soccer. They called me the guillotine. They called me the hatchet. But uh, at the end of the day, you know what? That's what's in my blood. Goalkeeper Casey Keller was on that team too. Eric Winalda, Tab Ramos. These are all names you'll hear again soon because 1990 was a formative moment for all of them, as doors were open to pro careers that had largely been closed to American players before that. John Hawks again. Everybody, the realization of actually going to the World Cup in Italy became a reality, and I think I almost just fell on the floor. All these emotions going through you, and the uh, best feeling ever, really. The U.S. didn't go all the way in that World Cup. 
the squad. It consisted largely of young, inexperienced college players, and they lost badly and quickly. The players joked that they were like tourists with really, really good World Cup tickets. But it was enough, just for them, to be invited to the ball. And anyway, they were already automatically qualified for the next World Cup in 1994, because for the first time ever, the tournament was going to be held in America. Stand beside her and guide her. And God damn it, I was there to witness it. If the 1990 World Cup showed the world that Americans could qualify for the tournament, the 1994 World Cup, it showed that they belonged. For a nation where soccer runs far down the list of pastimes, hosting the World Cup is quite a coup, so the first fan will be joining the dignitaries in opening ceremonies at Chicago's Soldier Field. Clinton will make welcoming remarks... You might recall someone else was in Chicago at that time. Yep. Under the influence of Ferris Bueller, I'd moved to Chicago and I was now living in Rogers Park, a neighbourhood I'd moved to purely because it had my name. Really, that was how I chose it. I wasn't at that first game with the Clintons, because to be honest, I barely had enough money for food. So I watched at home on a busted old TV with a broken knob that my building janitor had somehow illegally wired to the cable system. And thank God I was watching, because the theatrics... God, that's Oprah, emceeing the opening ceremonies of the World Cup. Yeah, Oprah may have fallen accidentally on stage, but we soon forgot because she did so while introducing Diana Ross, who charged across the field an electric vision in a red pantsuit flying in the wind. Yeah, somehow missing a penalty kick from about one yard out, but it felt, oh my God, like the USA was pulling out all of its stops and to the eyes of this English boy obsessed with everything American, it was all so glorious. For those of us in the game, that World Cup was very emotional. That's right, Bob Lee, you ESPN sportscasting legend. I I remember walking into Giant Stadium in 1994, and it was a natural grass surface in there for the first time ever for the 94 World Cup in this great stadium. And I, 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 I got a little moist in the eyes. This is great. This is the world's game going to be played like 10 minutes from where I grew up. The freaking World Cup. And then I watched the American players take the field for the first time. And that was the true marriage of everything I loved. I'd never seen American players before. And there they were, swaggering around in their stonewashed denim jerseys, ginger of beard, resplendent of mullet. And it was perfect timing too, because where I'd come from in England, things were going to help. Back then, English football was just emerging from decades of hooligan violence, where you'd routinely step over broken bodies on the way into the stadium. So watching these Americans strut onto the field, a little bit like the cast of Reservoir Dogs in that slow-mo opening scene when they leave the diner, they appeared in striking contrast to everything English footballers were about. These Americans, they seemed confident, optimistic, 
and most strikingly of all, happy. World Cup game ever played indoors, and Seamus, the moment has arrived for U.S. soccer. Put in perspective, what did it feel like, John, to run out with your U.S. team at the Pontiac Silverdome before 73,000 screaming fans, the world watching a World Cup on American turf? God, we were fighting for the nation there. We were fighting for respect again. Like, this is our chance to shine. This is our chance to push it over the ledge. We have to, in order for this game to survive in our country, we have to do something pretty special. And out of the gate, they only go and tie Switzerland in Detroit. Four days later. As Marks now, with Calagiri overlapping on the far side, sends it inside, it's an own goal! The USA gets the score, Escobar, on the own goal. The U.S. has completed the big upset with a 2-1 to win over heavily favoured Colombia. Anyone who watched the orange goatee defender Alexi Lala shut down Colombian super striker Faustino Aspria, they knew. They just witnessed the birth of a new colossus. I see a lot of people, they're, they're wearing American flags on their heads, they're wrapped in American flags, their faces are even painted in American flags. and they are... The U.S. team had done the unthinkable. They made it to the next stage of the tournament, the round of 16. The U.S. faces heavily favored Brazil in round two of the World Cup today at Stanford Stadium. It's the Americans' first second round game since 1930. A brave USA. They'd lose that game to Brazil on July 4th, no less. 1-0 and they were out of the tournament. But it didn't matter because they'd outperformed all expectations. And now, U.S. national team players were in demand. Offers flooded in from elite club teams across Europe. Letterman bookers, Hollywood agents. There were commercials for shampoo. That's why I use this stuff, Perk Plus. One smart shampoo can... And candy bars. If I get hungry, I don't leave. I grab a Snickers. American players were paired up with heavy metal gods at the MTV Europe Music Awards. I'll let Tom Jones do the honours. One of the stars of the World Cup, now playing for Padova in Italy, Alexi Lalas, and from Megadeth, Dave Mustaine. Hello, Berlin. Hey, it's great to be here. But David and it was great to be here. There was even a new league on the horizon, Major League Soccer, which promised jobs and a long career for all. At long last, there was money in soccer. Things were changing. Marcelo Balboa. There was a little jealousy. There's no doubt about it. Listen, when, when guys are driving up in Porsches in 94, guys are, have horses up in the mountains uh, in Mission Viejo that, that they got a stable, that they bought horses and they were there. Guys were buying uh, jet skis. I mean, all of those players on that team suddenly became, at least in the soccer universe, household names, saleable commodities uh, in the prime of their careers. ESPN's Bob Lee. I always imagine those moments in the wake of the World Cup feeling like that moment in this Scorsese film where the money's starting to pour in and they're, you know, weighing the dollars <laughs> in the weighing machines and the money's kept, the business is... Like, it was an exhilarating time to be alive as a, as a man like yourself who'd covered soccer in the dark ages and suddenly just felt anything was possible. Well, it was validation. It was absolute validation. It was everything you hoped and would never really say out loud. And it was one of the great moments. It, it was, that was the moment that told me, it's like, 
We don't know what we have just uncorked here with this World Cup. Now America had shown their cards. They had the goods. And it had to be two steps forward, no steps back. If soccer was to feel like a long-term viable business. Which meant for the team, they not only had to qualify for the 1998 World Cup, they had to go deep. They had to make some noise. Rob Stone, then at ESPN. I guess it's American, Raj, in the sense that if you've achieved this, you're now saying to yourself, well, of course, now it's time to take it up to the next level and then the next, and soon enough, we're going to win the World Cup or we're going to be the greatest hockey planet on the, you know, wh- whatever it is. I don't know if you have that in England, but America, yeah, that's what it is. You've achieved achieved point B. Well, now it's time to go to point A. And then once you hit A, let's go to A plus. And, and that just seemed like really the natural progression. Uh, and, and I bought into it. I, I realized, hey, we, were, we did this wonderful thing here. We've had four years to get better. Yeah, yeah, we should make noise in France. Remember what I said earlier? Americans, more than any other nation I've ever come across, you are obsessed with winning. You love your dominant winning, your dream team, running up the score against Angola. You've got your underdog winning, your Rocky, your Sea Biscuit, your Miracle on Ice winning, winning tenaciously against the odds. I, however, have always loved the opposite. I'm fascinated by failure, especially when it happens on a grand scale. And this is one such story, the story of Americans who thought they had victory within their grasp as a collective, only to be undone and torn apart by self-interest and creeping individualism. It's my favorite kind of story, packed with one terrible human decision after another. It's the story of an American fiasco. American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botine, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jameson York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldrich, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. Audio in this episode, courtesy of ESPN and ABC Sports. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. This is Rog. One quick favour. If you enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to your friends, especially those that are just starting to fall in love with the sport during the World Cup. It's guaranteed, I promise you, to put them over the top. One more thing. Write a review on Apple Podcasts and tell them what you think. I know it sounds crazy. I never do it either. I cannot tell you, though, just how much it helps. Courage.